You're listening to Music Growth Talks, the podcast for musicpreneurs, with Andrew Apanov. Hello, dear listeners, Andrew Apanov here. This is the Music Growth Talks podcast, episode number 107, and my guest today is Sherry Hugh. She's a tech and music columnist for Billboards and Forbes. She's been writing for numerous other publications and uh, she runs her own Medium blog, which I'll mention later on this show. I first met Sherry at uh, the Fast Forward conference in Amsterdam uh, last year, 2017, and then I was a witness to her receiving the Music Business Journalist of the Year Awards at the Reeperbahn Festival in 2017 as well. Uh, she's a very prolific writer, uh, delivers some uh, amazingly insightful stories, uh, and uh, in the show notes you can find links to her website. Um, so th- there is uh, there is the website, there is the writing section, I recommend you checking it out. Uh, so there is a bunch of uh, pieces you can go through. It's maybe a bit overwhelming at first, so uh, if you want to focus just on a couple at first, I recommend you uh, reading uh, uh, two very specific pieces uh, because these are uh, the ones we uh, talk about on this episode. So there is the article about ADI rising and a medium piece called The Artist as Technology, part one. So uh, I link to these two in the show notes. You can find this at datamusic.com and uh, musicgrowthtalks.com. Uh, so at the data music post about this episode, there are the links to these specific blog posts. If you read them, you'll get more context to today's podcast episode. Sherry is a musician herself and with her passion for technology and data, she brings a unique perspective to the important industry topics and uh, she's been covering the subjects no one had talked about before. On this Music Growth Talks episode, we talked about several of her recent pieces. Uh, We recorded this show in February, at the end of uh, February. And uh, uh, yeah, so I don't want to spoil it in any way, just uh, um, uh, simply inviting you to enjoy this uh, conversation with Sherry Hugh. And uh, while I have your attention, it's just a reminder that if you want to learn more from me personally about music marketing strategies and tactics in particular, consider becoming my patron at Patreon. You can learn more at musicianswebkeeper.com which will redirect you to patreon.com forward slash Uh This is also the best way to support this very podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Music Growth Talks. I'm excited to have you on the show. Yeah, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Do you mind sharing a bit of your background with our listeners? There is a lot of interesting things that have been happening with your journalistic career in the past year from a couple years from what uh, I can see and I'm really excited to see the all the achievements and the new pieces you've been putting out but yeah so do just mind sharing how you ended up uh, writing and being interested in in such uh, interesting niche topics such as uh, music and tech yeah for sure so I've grown up in music my whole life. So I studied piano for 15 years. So my interest in the industry, I guess, comes 
first and foremost from a passion for the creative side and for the art itself. And I also minored in music in college, but my major was in stats and math. And I was always really interested in combining those two into a single career. And so I tried to imbue a more data-driven perspective in my writing. And what got me into music and tech in particular was actually from a more academic standpoint. So I was a research assistant at Harvard Business School one summer, and they were launching a new project looking at new music business models, especially in DIY artist circles. Um, And so not only was that my first exposure to music and tech, but that was my first time talking with people behind companies like Patreon, Pledge Music, Cash Music. So definitely very sort of scrappy from the ground up companies. And that really showed me how the DIY music community was really driving a lot of innovation in the wider industry. And so I was really grateful to have that sort of angle from the get-go. And then I, how I started writing, writing was never in my purview professionally, but I ran into my current editor at Forbes actually at a career fair at my university. And I mentioned this music tech project that I'd worked on. And he immediately said, oh, we need more people to write about music and tech, actually. Like streaming is becoming increasingly important. This was back in fall 2015. And yeah, so he was like, oh, you should totally submit writing samples and consider contributing for us. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that they were looking for more writers in this space. But uh, yeah, so that's that's how I got started. That was back in November 2015. And as of last summer, so around July, I also started writing for Billboard. So those two are my main outlets for now. Right. Yeah. And you put out some pieces on your Medium. Yes. Yeah. My, my, my Medium blog is, I guess, for longer data journalism pieces or more like thought experiments that might not necessarily fit onto Forbes or Billboard. Yeah. It's, I guess it's more of my own like personal space to explore ideas more deeply. Yeah, and to everyone listening to us, I'm linking to to your profiles, uh, to your Medium blog, and to to your profiles on Billboard and uh, Forbes, just so it's easy to find uh, uh, the articles of yours there. And uh, I'm of course be linking to very specific articles we will probably be talking about today on this show, so it's easy to find and read in full, which I highly recommend. I really like this angle of yours, how you and the, how you approach the topic, and that a lot of the things you cover in your articles are applicable to this DIY indie music scene. This is who uh, we work with mainly at Data Music, and this is uh, like most of our listeners are independent musicians trying to uh, make sense out of um, the whole digital world, social media, and all the new music platforms popping up all the time. So uh, it's great to get some actionable kinds of ideas out of your analysis and uh, and case studies. Do you mind sharing uh, uh, some of the latest uh, topics you've been researching? I know that you've um, worked uh, quite a lot on that story about 88 Rising, but maybe yeah, you want to mention anything else you've been working on right now and just as a reminder to also everyone listening uh we're recording this at the end of february like literally at the very end of february so and it may be out in late in march so while we are talking about this what what's your what themes are you into the most yes so i guess i'll start very briefly with that 88 rising piece so if you're listening and don't know what 88 rising is it's a really fascinating company most people know it as 
a record label and artist management company. They manage a lot of artists across Asia. Their most well-known artists are from Indonesia, China, and Korea, and they've managed to pull off a lot of sold-out tours throughout Asia and the U.S. as well with all those artists together. And so it's really multilingual. The audience is very international. But also, they're not just a music company. They've done video campaigns for brands like Adidas and Nike. They landed, they produced a whole Chinese New Year commercial in China for Sprite. And so they're really a sort of multifaceted creative production company that also is breaking barriers in music and breaking major label records in music, especially abroad in the streaming space. So I'm always really interested in in new models that are coming up. And increasingly, I'm seeing that a lot of music companies don't want to be pigeonholed sort of into music alone. They see the need to become diversified media brands in their own right. So this is a very long-term interest of mine. And 88 Rising is just one recent example of that. And so on, on, on my Medium blog as well, I'm working on a new series called The Artist's Technology that's diving into the similarities and differences in strategies between artists and tech products. Because I've just, so as a journalist, I'm always reading a lot, really interested in how people frame ideas with words. And I've noticed increasingly that a lot of people are using tech metaphors to describe artists' careers. Like there's a, so in, in, the, in my first post in this series, I open with an example of someone calling Drake's hotline bling video like open source software. And he was using that term to reference how people were j- just kept making memes off of that video. And that's how it went viral. And that definitely helped Drake to top the charts for a very long time. And I also referenced in the article the launch of certain companies like United Masters, which in my limited time in this industry, I have not seen so much skepticism around a product launch as with United Masters. But <laughs> but one, one interesting component of the press release was, I think they were essentially making the argument that an artist should see themselves either like a tech product or like a blockbuster brand like Nike. Like they can use, they can leverage social media data or data from other online sources and use that to build out a full-fledged brand or product. And so yeah, I'm just, I was really in- intrigued by this growing rhetoric and hopefully in this series, I can dive into that even deeper. And literally in this first post and a future post, I copied and pasted some theory of tech innovation, like the tech adoption cycle, try to transfer it into a musician's career, whether starting out for the first time or signed to a major label and just seeing where it could work and where it's a little messier. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's a fascinating concept. That, and I mean, we even uh, use the terms growth hacking and and and, uh, and so on when applied to music marketing campaigns. And uh, actually, like doing that quite a bit. And there is lots of similarities in the approach. And uh, we often hear the comparisons of um, of musicians uh, to tech startups. I think that there is a bit of uh, misunderstanding there and some uh, some people i've seen how some people have been misusing it or maybe not fully understanding what where exactly the similarities are so i'm yeah looking forward to uh to reading the rest of your series i'm curious if if you can yeah if you can give uh a couple more specific examples to those uh, artists for example musicians listening to us who like the idea and they want to be like big brands and they 
are very willing to learn how to be like a tech startup, but they have no experience in the tech space. They haven't uh, created or been involved in, uh, you know, tech startup, for example. So they may not even know where to start. I know it's a bit of a broad question, but can you give maybe a couple more examples of approaching it right? Yeah, sure. So yeah, one big theme in this blog post that I wrote was that, so the, the tech adoption life cycle and the artist adoption life cycle, if you want to, so I guess transfer that concept has four different segments of adopters that have different priorities. And I guess a, a key tenant of this theory is that one segment will lead into the other. So at the beginning, you have the innovators, which in a tech context, they just care about the latest tech. They want to try out the latest tech. They don't have any allegiance to any particular brand. They're just curious about innovation for innovation's sake. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, you have what some people call the, the late majority or conservative, more conservatively minded people who don't really care about innovation. They only want to make incremental progress on sort of core businesses, revenue streams, values, whatever that they already are succeeding at. And so it's more about maintaining the status quo and only adopting some sort of product if it helps them make progress within that status quo. And what I was trying to communicate is that a lot of artists just starting out, I think, want to immediately break, whatever that means. They, They want to immediately top the charts. They want to immediately get to a major label deal. So they immediately go to the end of that cycle when really there are so many more, there's a lot more deliberate building engagement with innovators at the beginning of the cycle that you need to do in order to sustainably go to the end of that cycle. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And jumping from from those uh, early adopters to to proper masses is not an easy task as well. It's uh, a lot of a lot of tech startups make this mistake, assuming that if they have a solid base of early adopters and users who like their product, that it will be very easy to scale up. And uh, is it called the chasm? These, yes, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. the chasm. Yep. Mind uh, yeah, explaining the concept a bit more, maybe? Yes, sure. So, so in this tech adoption cycle, there are five segments in total, but you can break the first two segments into... So you can group the two segments at the beginning into something called the early market. And the latter three segments, the more conservatively minded, are called the mainstream market. And while it is true that you do need to sort of master one segment in order to go on to the next one, a common misconception, especially in the tech world, and I think in music as well, is that the transition from the early to the mainstream market is totally smooth. Like you see the curve on the line. It's like, oh, I just ride the curve and... That's yeah. what it takes to, to succeed. And this is a very contentious issue in music, I think, because as an artist, you want to stay true to your creative vision. Making music is a form of self-expression. You're really being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. And yes, you want to have that vision intact. But then what this chasm theory claims is that you can't give the same pitch to the early market as to the mainstream market. Yeah. So so yes, yes, you can hold on to your vision, but the way that you communicate that in the early market at the beginning of your career versus if you're trying to really scale and reach the mainstream has to be fundamentally different. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, is there an artist who, who, who's, who's successful already and uh, 
reached the mainstream market some time ago who we could uh, mention here somehow maybe this 88 rising roster somehow which brian for example like a lot huge success in in asia and uh do you know anything about how it started or any other example really you mentioned drake in your medium piece i'm just curious if you could you know mention a very specific artist and kind of try to analyze how it looked like for them specifically yes 88 rising is a great example and in my article i yeah talk about how they had really had to shift their marketing strategy as they were growing so two Actually, two of the first artists that signed to the management roster for 88 Rising, one is named Joji. He's half Japanese, but he he sings in English. He's an electronic artist. He made the original video behind the Harlem Shake meme back in 2013. And he originally was like this huge YouTube comedy personality. And so he was, I guess he, he had very deep roots in that more organic means of communicating with people online. And another signee, yeah, Rich Brian, who is probably the most popular artist with Idiot Rising right now, he grew up, so one, he learned English through listening to rap music, but also learned about American, sort of an American sense of humor through watching YouTube videos and like scrolling through all these memes and even making memes of his own. And he still really has that flavor about him. If you follow him, his account on Twitter, I think it's hilarious. So so they, they had... They grew up in this sort of meme world, and I think 88 Rising initially wanted to embed that deliberately into their marketing strategy. Like, I guess, like in the way that Drake did with Hotline Bling, or more recently with Migos, Bad and Bougie, like these songs blew up because people took those songs and made them into memes. But then as they're going bigger, they're doing TV commercials with Sprite in China, and they're... I so I, yeah, I talked to the 88 Rising founder about how they're trying to expand more in China, and the founder said that we like they've done all that they think they can do organically, and now they actually really need to develop better relationships with the local platforms there and get deliberate promotion like on their homepage. So it, like Spotify is not in China, but it will be the equivalent of like getting placement on Spotify's browse page or primary playlist placement or something like that, which is is difficult to do maybe as the DIY artist, but as, as you're growing, that's like a necessary marketing strategy that they didn't necessarily like want to do or think about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so what you mentioned earlier as well, that a uh, lot of artists who are just starting out want these uh, major features right away, but um, it's not, it, most of the times it's not even what they need necessarily because uh, uh, a major Spotify playlist feature may, may not result into much uh, for an artist with uh, with no existing fan base and, and no kind of footprint on these platforms. Uh, but there is the right time for this kind of promotion as well for for musicians. So it's a good one. And with China, I mean, it's, I don't know too much about the Asian market. I'm curious about it and trying to learn more from articles like yours. But I mean, the uh, so many platforms are banned there. And now... I actually only learned about that from your article about the hip-hop essentially banned <laughs> on major platforms in China. So it's it can be very challenging for Western companies to come to the Asian market and market their artists there. But I think it's there is a lot of interesting things happening with 88 Ryzen and the likes. Any, any advice to, for example, a US-based band 
in some, you know, in any kind of maybe rock genre or whatever, who are curious if maybe they already know that they have a bit of a listener base in a particular Asian country. And uh, would would you recommend to them to explore entering the market in any way at all, if you have such an advice? Mm, a tricky a one, yeah. Question. Let me think about this a little bit, actually. It can be a general kind of advice here, but I'm curious myself because I'm not exactly sure. Like, it depends on, on an act for sure, but it's not very straightforward unless you have existing contacts there. Yeah, so I... This is sort of me thinking out loud, but I, I, I guess I'll start with an example because... So I, I didn't quite realize this until I actually was in Tokyo for a week in December, but the difficulty goes both ways, I think. So, so not only is it difficult for Western artists to break into Asian markets just because of the language barrier, just the ecosystem is totally different, but especially in East Asian countries like China and Japan tend to be very insular or mm-hmm. sort of like a walled garden in terms of not just their music industry, but I know like China's, China's tech industry is very closed off. Like, yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of Western platforms are banned there. So everything, everything that people in mainland China use on a daily basis is basically controlled by these two local tech conglomerates. And that does transfer into music. There's definitely more of an emphasis on local repertoire and in Japan as well. Yeah, there's so and Japanese companies as well. I learned while I was in Tokyo, they're they're very protective of their IP as well. So they're very reluctant to, for instance, like license their music onto a Western service like Spotify. Like Spotify has been in, in Japan for a year, over a year, a bit over a year, but only has a couple hundred thousand subscribers. Yeah. So it's it hasn't really quite taken off. But if you look on sites like Chartmetric, there are a couple of are, are you familiar with Chartmetric? Not exactly. Okay. It's a really useful playlist analytics and sort of like playlist data platform. And so you can like search up any Spotify playlist and it'll show you, I guess, how many, like it's follower growth over time, what tracks have been added or removed over time, what's the label distribution within a playlist. So it's really interesting. And a lot of, and so I know for for Japanese artists who are on Spotify, who are looking to get more international exposure, playlist placement on Western playlists is really helpful. So just one example. So one of my favorite artists is Tom Mish. He's uh, sort of a neo-soul, a very young, I think only 21 years old, neo-soul artist in, based in the UK. And what he does, and actually one piece of advice I would give artists in general is using playlists almost as a social media tool. So like Tom Mish has his own playlist of just good music he's listening to right now, and he'll update it every week or so. And it's, it's garnered a lot of followers. And it's because of that playlist that this one electronic artist in Japan is now getting a ton of streams outside of Japan just because of that placement. Yeah. So, and people in Japan will notice that just because streaming is still, I guess, in, in uh, such a nascent stage there. So I guess just, yeah, I think that that would be one piece of advice just in terms of getting on the radar of certain artists in Asia and vice versa. It's just like, fi- like listening to explore the music on Spotify. And then if you have a playlist of your own, sort of promoting that and then which will drive exposure for them, which I know an increasing number of artists in Asia are, are trying to do, but don't really know how to approach it. That'll just be one example. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's good, so, and yeah. and and this is the the tactic we you uh, we we mentioned on uh, on one episode talking just specifically about Spotify. Uh, I really like this uh, idea of playlists created by artists which are updated on a regular basis and uh, i'm subscribed to i'm following a couple myself and i really like the format and i see how it's growing much faster than just a kind of static playlist so that's a good one and no i think it's good and uh, it's not it, it wasn't it was just a random question i came up with not even realizing that it may be a bit too complex to uh to answer on just mm-hmm. one podcast episode without uh yeah it's um it's an interesting theme. I think we will see a lot more more news appearing in in that uh, in that area, and more Asian artists uh, appearing in Western markets and vice vice versa. I'm really into that uh, concept of yours that you are describing on um, described in the uh, in that medium post we talked about, and um, I yeah we you explained it really well already, and uh, as mentioned, I'm linking to it in the show notes, so it's really easy to find the hobbies and uh, probably read the follow-up articles as well maybe by the time this episode is out they will really be up online but um yeah i'm i'm still curious if uh, if you have any examples just can be a completely random or general of how this model has actually been working in in music so do you have any other artists by any chance in your like in mind right now who you could mention as a as a good example of? Yes, yes, I do, and this is actually a more personal example in the That's sense that. Good. So I in middle school, so this was two thousand like six to two thousand nine. I was on Tumblr all the time, and I had my own very scrappy music blog on Tumblr, and I followed a lot of fellow music lovers as well. And there's like a very tight knit community, and then one thing that this community would do, myself included, was sort of upload free mixtapes every week or every month, just of music that they were listening to at the time that, that, that they really liked. And then people would just like download them and sort of exchange your thoughts about them. And that's what I first learned about The weekend. So The weekend was like putting out these very lo-fi R&B singles back in like 2007, 2008. And he was not on the radio, not signed to a major label at all. He definitely sort of thrived in these more DIY and frankly like piracy driven environments. I laugh a little bit when I when I think back on this and being like that those years were so influential on my music taste, but I was pirating music like from right. from people in this community and but like that, that that's what made me like a fan of artists like like The Weeknd and that drove our our love for music. And so right. that that's a whole other conversation I guess about the positive effects of pi- not piracy or just making music available for for free generally but yeah so so the weekend definitely had a very different strategy then and and his music right now being signed to a major definitely sounds much more refined much more top 40 radio friendly his whole image has totally changed but i he he is still himself i think he still is very distinctly the weekend he's not trying to copy anyone else necessarily but it's just very, he's not on Tumblr anymore. Like that's just yeah. not where he's trying to put his music, right? He is, he's trying to chase like as much scale as he can right now. So yeah, that's another example. Yeah. And uh, so I don't think that even some of the kinds of 
fans of uh, weekend uh, know about uh, his his Tumblr background that much, uh, unless they're diehard fans. So it's um, it's important to to remember all the artists who have uh, achieved success. Uh, they were starting with some smaller platforms and with experimenting and with practicing and uh, with releasing lots of stuff. And yeah, it's it just, uh, it's useful to uh, examine and analyze, uh, analyze these kind of uh, cases, in my opinion, to to see what, uh, what you can apply for your own project. Uh, the memes example you, you mentioned is a really good one. Also, not everyone is kind of getting it and uh, doing it right. But mm-hmm. if you, for those artists who just grew up in the environment surrounded by the internet culture and things like memes, they can implement it in their marketing strategy really well. It's difficult to completely kind of fake it. So you you really need to understand it deeply from what I see. Especially, yeah, like in the meme world, people will definitely call you out if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, it is is definitely difficult. Yeah, I I think as as more major labels have tried to make memes around the latest single, I think it's, it's clear that yeah, it's it is tricky because I don't think there is any formula to virality. Otherwise, like many more people would be going viral, or many, it, would, it would be much easier. But on the other hand, it's it's very easy to figure out whether a voice is authentic or not, or whether you really like get what a meme is getting at or not. So yeah, if like if you do want to do memes, it is very important to sort of have have grown up in that culture and to do more of like a bottom up rather than top down approach. What do you think about hijacking news events and uh, trending topics, uh, anything that people are talking about in order to gain growth for a music project? Hijacking news and trends, in, meaning sort of... Yeah, for, yeah uh, doing uh, a music video highlighting some of the, the, I don't know, popular political themes or just uh, talking about... Yeah, just trying to do something. Is the simple example is creating a, a single about a popular internet culture, political, you know, topic uh, that's hot right now, and uh, you know, media outlets are covering a lot. Maybe you know, mm. any, and yeah, maybe you've seen any good examples of that, or maybe you don't even think it's a good idea as a long-term strategy. Yeah, I think it completely depends on your vision and your voice as an artist. So, so one, one example that I think is good. So I think it was it, I think it was last year, hopefully it wasn't two years ago that there was a whole scandal with United airlines where they dragged a doctor yeah. off of one of their flights. Right. And so that doctor happened to be Asian and uh, United airlines claimed that it, it had nothing to do with ethnicity, but then this Asian rap duo called year of the ox very sort of DIY indie right now, but they're personally, they're one of my favorite rappers. They almost immediately recorded this short single and made, I think a good, but clearly very inexpensive video sort of in response to that. And it was called jet lag and it was half of a commentary on the news and the the visuals in the video very clearly are making reference to that action of just like dragging someone off of a plane. But then it also was also more generalizable to just sort of asserting their power and their value, I guess, in this world. So it's called Jet Lag by Year of the Ox. I think that's a good example. Yeah, I think if, you're, if your goal is to be, make, I guess, more politically minded, politically conscious music, 
then I think people would want to turn to you to speak on certain events. And so it would make sense for you to, I guess, tag along with those news trends. But if that's not part of like your goal as an artist or who you really are, yeah, it, I, I can definitely see it coming across as something that you're, you're like, I guess, it's, yeah, it's like chasing scale for mm-hmm. scale's sake, going, yeah. going back to the whole tech adoption concept. Yeah. So going immediately for that without giving more consideration to like who you really are and what your goals are right now and what you need to do to grow in a more sustainable way. Right, right, right. Yeah, it makes sense. It, I guess it needs to be both timely and relevant to brands and uh, to audience as well. And uh, yeah, so what, what you just mentioned makes lots of sense. Good stuff. I mean, there is a lot of, um, of um, interesting topics you've been covering uh, on uh forbes and billboards and uh, your own blog uh, that we could potentially talk about i would love to have you on this show again sometime in the future but um uh for now i'm inviting everyone uh, listening to us just to you know subscribe to your online profiles uh and follow you on twitter and so on and just um watch out for uh new pieces you publish because there is a lot of um important advice for the industry so I do think that uh, yeah, you will uh, will see lots more people uh, reading your stuff in the coming months for sure. As a kind of final thought, do you have anything uh, else recent relevant that's been on your mind? That's or maybe sort of an advice or a news piece or anything at all that you would want to share with our listeners? Yes. So I'm. I guess so. Hopefully this this will be out by the time this episode is published. But I've been thinking a lot about the role of AI in the music creation process. So I'm working on a longer feature around AI-generated music. And so, and my stance on it is that it will revolutionize but not rob the music industry. I think that there's a lot of fear that AI will sort of, I guess, replace a lot of musicians' jobs. But my goal is, I guess, to show that that's not the point. And that's a very, very long way down the road in terms of an AI really competing creatively with humans. Interesting. Um, yeah. 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 So, and yeah. yeah sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I just remembered uh, comments of some of the musicians I've been talking to who are creating music for license, and specifically, they're terrified by by the idea that an AI will be creating music because they may be the first to to suffer from that potentially. Will I will I'm looking forward to reading your piece on that and see your your opinion on that but it's definitely an interesting topic and i just know that our listeners are really into that and most of the musicians are indeed scary sort of mm. by the concept so what you just mentioned in with your approach here i do like it for sure cool yeah thank you yeah and so my hope is to show that yeah like especially dmi artists they should not be scared but it will force them to i think rethink their job and like, like rethink what value they bring to the table and how AI could sort of fit into that yeah. wider value. Yeah. Makes sense. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I guess lastly, another long-term research interest. So, and this is related to my artist's technology piece, but I've noticed that more and more people are moving professionally from the tech and VC world to the music world. So most recent example, Cobalt's new chief strategy and business development officer, Avid Duggan. I think is how you say her name. She used to work at, at Google Ventures. She was previously a partner there. And Cobalt was a was a portfolio company of Google Ventures, but now she's actually working directly in the music space. And I also know Madison Square Garden, which is, I guess, is, is, is a general live entertainment company, not just in music, but they have 
their own venture arm that's pretty recent and that's growing quite quickly. And they've recruited quite a lot of people from the finance world, even from the sports world. Someone who used to work at Techstars is now there. So there's just like a there's an increasing exchange of experience and insights just between these two industries. And that's something that I definitely want to follow. This yeah, year. yeah, I'm excited about that as well. So uh, definitely, it's it's great that it's happening. And it's not just uh, people from the music industry, great minds from the music industry living to have uh, mm-hmm. and almost suddenly more profitable industries in most cases, more profitable than music. Uh, so that's, that's great news as well. I just remind, uh, remembered about ASI, the new ANA platform. Uh, I just, yes. when mm-hmm. I just had them on the podcast as well. Folks who worked at the likes of Apple and Facebook, just focusing on the tech startup still, but purely music related. Um, so I hope that we will be seeing more cases like that when yeah this kind of innovation is is what we need in music i think yes thank you uh looking forward to all the new articles of yours as mentioned uh thank you a lot for sharing some great cases and uh, insights with us here and uh yeah to uh everyone listening as mentioned uh, so be sure to to subscribe, follow, and so on. The links are in the show notes. And yeah, Sharon, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Glad I could be here. And I would love to come out to a future episode, for sure. Definitely, it will happen. Thank you. I truly wish we had more time to talk about some of the other articles uh, Sherry has written in the past uh, few months. Uh, but uh, I do try to keep uh, my podcast episodes uh, short sort of um by the way if you have any feedback on that please let me know in the comments or by email me at andrew at wispin.co for example and uh, uh twitter is also a good place for that by the way so at matt andrew just tweet me if you have any feedback on that because i'm thinking of uh, even uh you know bringing the formats of uh, the music growth talks podcast to you know to uh, a more concise and short um episodes such as 20 to 30 minutes maximum including my uh rumblings in the intro and outro of the show so if you have any uh thoughts on that do let me know i prefer having longer conversations with my guests but uh i'll you know being subscribed to numerous podcasts and um after hearing some feedback from musicians listening to this show uh, i i do know really well how um it may just feel overwhelming to see uh, a podcast episode that you may enjoy but which lasts an hour because you can very well you know listen to free uh, episodes of another podcast during the same time so just a side note here if you have any feedback on that please let me know and uh, we are definitely going to have Sherry on this show again sometime in the future. Uh, as I mentioned to you, you absolutely should uh, subscribe to uh, to her stuff. And uh, there are links to the websites and to the various articles and resources we talked about. Dottymusic.com, just find the uh, this show number 107 with Sherry Hume. Uh, and uh, yeah, check it all out in the show notes. Thank you all for listening i appreciate it a lot uh, and uh, i'm looking forward to sharing with you uh, the next episode in the coming two weeks thank you
You've been listening to Music Growth Talks with Andrew Apanov. Find more episodes and subscribe at musicgrowthtalks.com.